This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services leader, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 179. It will be a short solo episode where I give you some thoughts on where I see the market going in 2024. As we approach the end of January, we've got a few quarterlies that have already come out this week. We have the Liontown situation where Wood McKenzie's report stating that they thought spodumene prices would stay at what I would characterize as unsustainable levels for several years that caused uh, the banks that were financing Liontown to rethink and want to go back and renegotiate uh, amount in terms. I think most of the people that listen to this podcast have already read everything they need to know about that, other than the fact that, and I've tweeted about this and posted on LinkedIn, I think Wood McKenzie is, if not the least competent, one of the least competent companies providing information out there or misinformation out there. Uh, I guess if they believe it, you can't really truly call it misinformation, but it's a head-scratcher when they have price below the high end of the cost curve on a sustained basis. I think that companies like Wood McKenzie that are respected in certain quarters, and unfortunately by the banks who are financing Liontown, These banks don't have in-house capability to judge uh, the lithium industry, which is still, by any measure, a small industry. They rely on outside sources. Unfortunately, Wood McKenzie clearly just doesn't get lithium. And uh, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and that is my opinion. And it's not just because they've done this particular thing. There's a track record going back. Uh, some period of time. And they purchased Roskill a few years ago, and I never really respected Roskill uh, either. There are people that uh, put out information on the lithium industry that I do respect. I listened to a call by Supply Chain Insights. Uh, Andy Leyland and uh, Jose Hoffer this morning did their outlook of uh, lithium for this year. I thought it was well done. I've had Benchmark on many times. I've had people like Peter Hanna on when he was working for Fast Markets. I've had people from Platts on. Uh, There are people I respect across the board, so it's not that I'm just negative on anybody that talks about lithium. That's not the case. But I am not a fan now and never have been a fan of Wood McKenzie. I'm not going to dwell on this. I have other things to talk about in this short episode But I do feel what Wood McKinsey has done here is irresponsible. I think they need to take a a hard look at their team and how they communicate information. Of course, 
the big story in 2024 is what's going to happen to price. Everybody's asking me about it. The press loves to talk about how, quote unquote, lithium prices have dropped 80% in the past year. That's abject nonsense. Yes, price is down. Yes, the China spot price is down in those kind of terms. If you go from the peak, which lasted a few weeks, to the lows. But let's take an objective look at it. As I've said many times, and people are tiring of hearing me saying it, but the price, and it's largely contract prices in Japan and Korea, were higher in 2023 than they were in 2022. I am not trying to paint a rosy picture. I'm just trying to deal with facts. We have a very ironic situation here in that the more the popular press, certain investment banks, and the likes of Wood McKenzie create negative sentiment, distort what's really happening in the market. Investment in early stage projects is drying up. That will exacerbate a shortage later in the decade, and we will likely repeat a similar cycle that we've seen since the lows in 2020 and then the miraculous rise to ridiculous levels in 2022. And let's also get the fact straight that in this cycle, we're still having lithium chemical prices, even on the China spot, in the low teens. If you go back to 2020, or a Cobra sold into China at the bottom of the market at less than $4,000 a ton. SQM sold into China at a similar amount. I think it might have been a little over $4,000. I'd have to go back and look that up. That's from memory. And if somebody wants to fact check me, uh, I'm fine. But it's, it's very close to those numbers. So what we've had this time is higher lows and hopefully... In the next cycle, we'll have lower highs and keep the riffraff out of the market. And what do I mean by riffraff? $80,000 a ton lithium for a short period of time brought in every kind of garbage LCE out there that you could dig up and ship to China, whether it was from Africa or any other places. And obviously, a lot of what got into the market was... Lapidolite that's been known in China for as long as I've been in this industry, people knew where it was. Even in the last cycle, when price peaked around 30000 a ton, Lapidolite didn't see the kind of rise it saw in the last cycle when you saw 50000 60000 70000 and then 80000 dollar a ton lithium that created an environment where it made sense to produce a Lapidolite. There is not a shortage of lithium values in the world. And at a high enough price, and if you're just digging up ore and don't have to beneficiate it, you just ship it to China, you can put a lot of LCEs on the ground in China in a relatively quick period of time. So when we look at the market now, current spot pricing in China in historical standards is still a significantly high price if you want to go back and look at what happened in the 80s, what happened in the 90s, what happened in the 2000s and the 2010s. A $13,000 a ton lithium price 
is still very attractive to the low end of the cost curve. It's going to be interesting to see, and the things you should watch in 2024, how does the narrative unfold? How much lapidolite can stay in the market at these prices? Some of it can, most of it won't. And what happens to all these projects around Africa that when people thought it was the endless summer of high prices made sense to quickly put into production, even if that production was just direct shipped or going to China. And that comment is not a pejorative on Africa. There are some good lithium assets, some maybe great lithium assets in Africa. But by and large, what we've seen come out is not the great assets that require the normal development timelines. The other point I'll make, and I think uh, Mr. Hooper also agrees with this, at least that's the way I heard one of his comments, is that a lot of the excess supply in 2023 wasn't lithium chemicals. It was inventory of cells. It was inventory of cathode. The supply chain was stuffed in 2022 when the price ran up to 80000 And now we're in a situation where we saw most of that unwind in 2023. Maybe there's still a bit of unwinding to go. But when we look at the lithium-ion battery supply chain, there's excess capacity in cells. There's excess capacity in cathodes. And as long as China is doing what China normally does, and that's overproduce when they can, uh, we're going to see destocking and restocking across that supply chain. And that's going to impact lithium chemicals. I've lived through this situation since the 90s when the lithium-ion battery business started. There were always times when there was too much cathode made and then lithium orders would dry up for a while while that cathode was worked off, the cathode inventory was worked off. We're going to see that continue and as the industry grows and China still has a disproportionately large position in the global lithium-ion battery supply chain, China's lack of discipline in that regard in terms of too many suppliers, too much capacity, that's going to affect lithium chemicals, it's going to affect spodumene. Where do I see things shaking out in 2024? The $64,000 question, and I don't see $64,000 lithium in 2024. I think the sentiment is still so negative that the price decreases will stop. They'll bump along that level for a quarter, maybe two quarters. I think prices have to go up because I don't think you can have the level of supply that we've had uh, at the current price level. It's the cost curve has substantially changed. Uh, There's more low quality material in the market that costs more to produce. Uh, the The unfortunate reality is that in China, people will essentially keep operating as long as they are cash positive to any regard. Western companies tend to uh, look at it a little bit differently, but That's the reality we're going to have to live with. I believe that we need an incentive price in the mid-20s. I think 20 to 30 is the next band of price we're going to see. But whether that 
takes until the fourth quarter of 2024 or whether it's late in the third quarter. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And people get into trouble and people will harp on me for getting too specific about a prediction when it's wrong. And any prediction you do on price very far in the future isn't going to be exactly right. I've learned to accept that. I've missed on price many times. I've written about it and published articles about price mea culpas in the past. And you can go on my LinkedIn page and start scrolling back and you'll find that. My ego is not at stake because I always know my price predictions aren't going to be right. But what I do trust is the fact that you can't have price below the high end of the cost curve for an extended period of time. I think almost everybody will agree that that's a fact. Again, for the listener, I don't have a script here. I am just talking into a mic with what comes into my head about significant topics. And I think another thing people need to realize is that the press in the United States in particular has gotten very negative on EVs. Uh, I watch uh, CNBC early, and then I watch Fox Business for a while every morning. And Fox Business has a negative EV story virtually every day. It's become a political issue, and it's an election year. EVs have been completely politicized in the United States. I think that's a story, but honestly, China's so far ahead of the rest of the world in producing EVs that the U.S. press only follows the narrative of Tesla and then what Ford and GM are doing. And Ford and GM haven't done a very good job of uh, making the transition, and you can throw Stellantis in there as well. I I won't even get into the, the European side of this. That's a topic for another day. But a Wall Street Journal headline in the last 24 hours is... Tesla projects slower growth in 2024 as EV demand softens. They continue to distort what's really happening. EVs had a great year last year globally. You cannot just take the United States in isolation when you're writing these headlines. And the other issue is Elon doesn't make a low-priced EV GM and Ford don't make low-priced EVs until the rest of the world catches up with China and they start offering models that the average income person can afford. EV demand is not going to be what the Biden administration would like. But the continued navel-gazing on the U.S. market isn't really the point. The point is what's happening globally with EVs and the BYD in particular, but China can make EVs at every price point. They can make EVs that people want to buy at every price point. And as they start to export them, it's not even the the story that China's EV growth rate slowed. Of course it's slowed. The growth rate slowed. It doesn't mean the unit growth is lower than the prior year. People continue to confuse growth and growth rate. You might want to, if, if you're troubled by that, you might want to take some time to, to really understand what's happening there. There's still a good global story. And the other thing is, and Andy Leyland made this point on his uh, call this morning, that lower lithium prices are actually increasing demand because ESS, lithium and ESS is much more attractive when lithium is at lower prices. So it's you got, you're exacerbating... 
the problem you're going to have in supply with financing drying up for new projects while lower lithium prices are creating additional demand. It's an interesting conundrum, and it's something you need to think about. This, these things aren't all going to f- affect just 2024. These are long-term uh, factors. But when I look at 2024, and I wanted this to be a 20-minute podcast, apparently it's going to be a little longer than that. We have some other things that I think you need to watch. You need to watch how DLE plays out. You're not going to have a massive DLE project come online in 2024, but what you are seeing is some of the majors looking at doing demos for DLE in their operations, what Exxon, what Standard are doing in the smack over. I don't believe that uh, the Salton Sea is going to yield a lot of uh, production in this decade with geothermal and DLE. There was a story in the LA Times today. Uh, you can you can look that up. I put a tweet out that said, I'm not a believer, and that's not a personal attack on anybody. It's just a fact that I've been there. I've I understand how that works, and it's a very corrosive brine, and and I see the smack over as a much more attractive uh, non-South America, non-Shanghai brine play. DLE will help South American projects over time, higher recovery rates, better quality, but DLE's not going to replace conventional pond systems. There'll be new projects that use DLE in South America, but DLE is not going to be deployed uh, to replace existing conventional uh, pond systems. The real promise of DLE is where you cannot evaporate. That is where you get the potential DLE as a disruptor. If you were doing massive quantities in the smack over or another brine situation like that, uh, I think oil field brines is still going to be small and far further off uh, time-wise. But I'm a believer in DLE. It's just, it's not a 2024 uh, supply factor in my mind. It's uh, a longer-term consideration, but you should be watching the developments in DLE. That's something I'd be paying attention to. I'd be paying attention uh, also to uh, President Malay and the politics in Argentina. I hope that uh, he is able to accomplish some of the things that uh, he's trying to do in terms of uh, straightening out the Argentina economy, but that's a tough slog. I've been going to Argentina since 1993. It goes left, it goes right. Um, The last time there was a a president, it was not too long ago, um, that was trying to put in reforms uh, that didn't go so well but let's hope the new guy uh, has his day in the sun and and things change and it's only going to be good for lithium in Argentina and if you look at lithium in Argentina it's not DLE driven at this point I'm hoping to see real DLE in Argentina but Kachari's not DLE and uh, hats off again to lithium Argentina they're doing a really nice job with the startup of Kachari uh, products, better quality, faster than is normally the case with a startup. And you can follow their uh, quarterlies and just see how that goes throughout the year.
with the most specialized team of lithium brine professionals in the world, Zalandis is dedicated to providing exceptional customer service and support throughout every stage of lithium brine field development and production. From the Atacama to Ombre Muerto to the USA and Canada, go to Zalandez.com for more information. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. All right, since I started this uh, episode by saying I was going to mention the quarterlies that have happened so far, I listened to Pilbara's uh, quarterly report. I thought Dale Henderson did a really good job, and I think what happened with the stock prices right after showed that there was more negativity about what they might hear than what they actually did hear. I also love the fact that Dale is very calm and measured in how he talks about the situation. Look at Pilbara's margins, even at the current pricing. Not a bad story. The fact that they're also continuing to push forward their expansions without any kind of delay, I also love that uh, confidence. Confidence in the market and confidence in the fact that they're in a position where they can make as much as they want to and they're still going to be okay. There are projects out there that, until the market turns around, aren't attractive. Minres also had their quarterly operations update. I'm not sure exactly what they call it. But when Mr. Ellison says that Wojina, Mount Marion, and Bald Hill are all currently profitable, uh, okay, I'll wait for the uh, earnings call. I mean, if you look at their report and look at the kind of grade uh, they're still producing at Mount Marion, yeah, it's up from 3.7, but who wants 3.7? I guarantee a gang fan does not. It's um, an interesting narrative out there. I mean, Mr. Ellison is a great deal maker. His business is very diversified. I would say the weak point in Minrez's business is their ability to make high-quality spodumene concentrate. We'll see if that changes over time. I also think that uh, given the way some of these contracts run, probably this quarter is going to be the low point. As they say, time will tell. I want to go back to Pilbara for a second and just talk about their extension of their volume going to Gangfen. I thought that was win-win on both sides. I actually wrote a little bit about that uh, in a LinkedIn post. From my perspective, Gangfen's a top tier, if not the top uh, company in China that you'd want to be partners with. And the one thing I like about what Pilbara has done uh, in comparison with what some of the other operators in WA have done is that not only is Pilbara a good operation, a good asset, they also have great partnerships. They also have downstream optionality with their POSCO joint venture. And in addition, they have the balance sheet to do other things in the downstream or elsewhere in upstream chemicals if they so choose so you have to look at the financial management that they've had in place and the strength of their balance sheet i like pilbara as a story and continue to 
when I compare and contrast that with Minrez, it's um, I think Mr. Ellison likes to talk about flying by the seat of his pants or making it up as he goes along, however you want to couch that. But I don't find the lithium business that they have uh, nearly as attractive despite its diversity. And again, time will tell. I'm a holder of Minres as well. It's just that do your own research. But I like the pure play aspect of Pilbara, pure lithium play. I'll make a final point for longer-term thinkers. Australia's had a great rise since 2016, 2017, when the new assets started coming online. Brine could not keep up with the growth lithium supply required, and Australia bailed out the lithium world. I see a transition happening over the next decade, especially if DLE uh, lives up to its promise. And I think everybody that's invested in a green bushes or a pill gangora or the better assets in WA is fine. But I'd be really cautious about uh, investing in marginal WA or Canadian uh, hard rock assets as I think we're seeing a world that is at least more than half lithium carbonate Brine has a huge advantage. The brine world, as they begin to develop more and more assets in both South America and elsewhere, brine has natural advantages, especially at the cost level when you're talking about lithium carbonate. And the best brine in the world is actually as low cost as any hard rock except for green bushes and going to hydroxide. I'd start thinking about that as I deployed my capital. This is not investing advice. I'm just telling you how I think about it. But uh, yeah, the best hard rock, no problem. But as you get into marginal assets, I would take care. This episode is also brought to you by Mississippi Lime, your innovation partner for solutions related to lime and calcium in your critical mineral processes. Visit lime4lithium.com. That's L-I-M-E, the number four, L-I-T-H-I-U-M dot com. All right, I am going to close this out with a few more comments. One is I would be remiss when I talked about uh, people that I respect that speak about lithium, uh, I need to mention uh, Daniel Jimenez, and I also need to mention uh, Chris Berry. Uh, the year-end episode I did with them is still getting a lot of downloads. It's only been out a month, but it's already number five all time in the 178 episodes I have out there with this one being 179. I also want to do a shout out to Ken Brinsden, who is moving to uh, Montreal, as I understand it, becoming the CEO of Patriot Battery Metals. And I think if you listen to episode 178, that 
was with Blair Way, who is the outgoing CEO, who is about to move into the COO role. I think that just dovetails perfectly with the way Blair talked about what he likes to do. I think it's a win-win-win situation. So uh, congratulations to um, Patriot uh, Battery Metals for making that change. And the final comment is, I do see the price bottom. Uh, I'm not saying it has bottomed. I'm saying I think the price bottom is drawing nigh. How quickly things turn around, I'm not 100% sure. I think you are going to see prices by the end of the year tick up substantially higher than where they are today, but substantially being 5 to $10 a kilo, uh, not uh, $40,000 or $50,000 a ton uh, pricing. I don't, I don't see that uh, in the near term or well, it could be in the midterm horizon, depending on how you define midterm. Anyway, I'm rambling now, so let me say I do think Spodumene is going to go a little bit lower, but I don't see that as uh, long-term, and I think things will turn, and it will be very obvious that what happened in 2023 wasn't simply lipidolite and material from Africa quickly making its way to China. I think you have to look at the destocking situation from an overstuffed lithium ion battery supply chain in 2022, meaning less lithium chemicals were needed because of excess cathode and excess cells. Uh, I've said that before. And just want to reiterate that and thank everybody for listening.